Support for this podcast comes from Simply Faster. Simply Faster provides in-depth articles covering speed training, sport science, and the use of technology in sport. Authored by high school, collegiate, and professional track and field and strength and conditioning coaches. Make sure to check them out at simplyfaster.com. Welcome to episode 98 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring John Kiley, Senior Lecturer in Elite Performance at the University of Central Lancashire. John Kiley took a circuitous route into strength and conditioning. In his early 20s, he competed both in kickboxing and boxing, a fighting career that he describes as modest, despite winning the Irish North Atlantic and World Kickboxing Light Heavyweight title and the British and Irish University Light Heavyweight Boxing Championship. These experiences as a fighter and coach led him to enroll at the University of Limerick at 27 years old to study sports and exercise science. Throughout his career, starting in 1997, John has been driven by curiosity. He has investigated topics in strength and conditioning, such as periodization and coordination. The investigation of both topics leads us to today's conversation, which centers around neuroplasticity and the role that it plays within rehabilitation. Enjoy the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Story Performance Podcast. Today I'm really excited to be joined by John Kiley. John, how are you? Really good, thanks. John, I'm looking forward to today's conversation where we're going to be talking about rehabilitation and more specifically, coordinative tasks during rehabilitation, how we can ensure that athletes have not only hit their strength benchmarks that um, in their RTP process, but also have been able to refine their coordinative skill. Great. Uh, it's it's a great topic. So hopefully we can shed a bit of light or at least add something interesting to the conversation. Absolutely. Where I want to begin is actually with the idea of neuroplasticity. And the reason that I want to begin there is because based on some of the articles that you've recently written, and that were published on Frontier, and they're excellent, by the way, um, there is this idea of promoting positive plasticity during rehabilitation. So that's the point that I want to get to. But at the onset, I actually want to talk about what exactly is neuroplasticity and how does it evolve as we age? So how does it differ from a child to an adult? Okay, well, and, and, and that's an, a really interesting way to start. And first of all, neuroplasticity is a term that didn't really exist in the mainstream, you know, much beyond eight, nine years ago. It was more of a, a kind of a, a in-house term for people involved in neuroscience. Now it's pretty much pervasive. It's pretty much everywhere. And really all that the term captures is that Anytime there is a change in neural circumstance, now that could be that you learn something or there's some type of insult, you know, like the obvious one, a physical trauma, but it could be anything else. You know, you you go binge drinking for a week or whatever it might be. So some type of insult to, to the brain. Then the legacy of that experience changes the brain in some way, and that is embedded through a plastic 
remodification of brain structures. Now, this isn't like that your brain changes shape or anything like that. This is on a really micro scale so that they're, you know, the very fine connections, uh, synapses, you know, between neurons, so on, that there's, there's some subtle change there. Now, it's called a plastic change because it can it can be driven the other way. It can be positive or negative. It can change. It can change back. It's not something that's either rigid or elastic in the sense that it automatically springs back to the same place. Plasticity is more captures more the sense that everything that your brain experiences it changes it very subtly, and that so, that change is manifest in a micro-architectural remodification. Plasticity can be seen both as a blessing and a curse. Um, if we were to use the example of running, what occurs due to neuroplastic refinement as one goes from novice to skilled? Okay, well, actually, to, uh, and I, I, I realize I missed a bit of your last question. You talked about what happens as you, you know, throughout age or throughout the lifespan. I, I, I guess you could start off by comparing us to most other mammals. So we're born helpless. It takes us a long time, a number of months to be able to, to stand, to balance another few months before we can take a couple of steps. And they're really faltering, clumsy, erratic type steps. You compare that to other large man, uh, mammals, a horse. I mean, a foal can stand after a couple of hours, can be walking, galloping. And one of the differences between us at the neural level is that they, those other animals have very hardwired connections, very hardwired reflexes that effectively they're born with. Whereas we tend to be, from a movement perspective, much more of a, bl a blank slate. Uh, and by blank slate, I just mean that how we learn to move is, isn't set in stone. It's something that evolves with us as we grow, as we experience different movement challenges. All of those movement challenges will cause little bits of plastic change. And gradually that kind of blank mass, if you want to call it that, in our motor cortex, will just start to get more, more finely, all the little individual components will start, excuse me, start to get more finely connected to each other. And over time, a, what's called a motor map starts to emerge. And really the motor map is your brain's, your motor cortex's representation of here's what I need to do to affect this movement, to our, sorry, to affect a, a movement outcome. And in humans, it's a uniquely slow process. You know, we take a long, long time compared to other animals to learn movements. And in a sense, that's a curse. But at the same, you know, in the sense that at six months, we are the most helpless, dependent mammal that you can get. Fast forward at 16, at 26, at 36, we're the only large mammal who can juggle, ride a unicycle, play the violin, do a bicycle kick, dribble a soccer ball, shoot a basket. It, so plasticity really is... It's, it's like it's a, an evolution, evolutionary strategy by humans to say that, OK, we're going to sacrifice security and uh, independence when we're young. But the payback is that 
we have this opportunity to learn a huge diversity of skills because we can plastically reshape all the connections in our brain to adapt to commonly encountered movement tasks. And again, that's from young to kind of, you know, when we're mature. As you go into old age and extreme old age, then things start to change. And I guess the way they change is is really interesting to me, at least. It's We go from this relatively blank, you know, just this plastic potential. And then depending on our experiences, what we do, what we learn, what we prioritize in our lives, we learn to become good at certain things. And we hold that for a number of decades. But inevitably, things that we do and repeat and do again, and when I say things, it could be thoughts, it could be actions of you know of habit, it could be movements. Any aspect of our life that we overdo becomes, in a sense, too deeply ingrained, too deeply embedded. It changes from it. 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 it you know, we become plastically imprisoned in a sense in how we think, in how we move, and we become limited. Uh, and let me give you a more concrete example. Uh, if we look at the phenomenon of movement variability, now when I say movement variability, I mean, you know, when we walk, for example, even though we might walk at the same pace, at the same stride length, at every fine dimension of that movement, there's inherent variability. You'll never take the same stride twice in your life. They might all look the same, but they're never exactly the same. There's always subtle variation in there. Now, when you're a kid, that's obvious because it's very erratic. It's huge variability. You're very inefficient. Then as you uh, as you age, it gets better, gets better, gets better. And bizarrely, and it's not something we normally think about, it keeps improving until you're in your mid-20s even though you've already taken millions of steps at that time. But then as you move into kind of old age and extreme old age, what you find is that variability range starts to expand again. So you go from a lot of variability to a more finely tuned, uh, controllable, limited amount of variability, a baby bear's porridge type range of variability. And as you move more into old age, then you become uh, less and less variable in how you move that may sound like a good thing to become less and less variable but variability is actually crucial it's crucial for a number of reasons you're never in this life going to be faced with the same exact context twice even when you walk there's always subtly different changes either in you know the momentum of a swinging leg or the angle of your knee compared to your hip you know in relation to your hip and so on there's always subtle things going on and if you have what I would think of as an appropriate bandwidth of conditioned variability, then you become very responsive. You can change and adapt on the fly, no problem. It's seamless. You don't notice it. Now, a child or a very old person doesn't have that same variability. The child is very erratic. Uh, so they misjudge things all the time, but they misjudge them substantially and they can't recover and they fall. The very elderly person then they become overly stereotyped. They become overly stereotypical in how they do what they do. And that results in another type of fragility in terms of uh, I can't respond to any unpredicted perturbation as well as I used to be able to. 
So variability in movement serves serves a number of purposes, and it's a good thing. But it has to be baby bears baby bears porridge. If there's too little, you're brittle. It means the same structures are getting hit the same way all the time, and that's a recipe for if you're a runner, that's a recipe for overuse injury. Uh, <clears throat> if if you're in any sport, it's a recipe for not being robust to unforeseen perturbations. The other side of the coin, if you have no variability whatsoever, then you don't really have any fatigue resilience. Uh, you're brittle for a different reason. And the, the, the different reason is that the same structures keep getting stressed in similar ways all the time. No, you actually made a great segue into what my follow-up question was going to be. And that was, how does variability play a role in overuse injuries? Because when we talk about rehabilitation, I think many of the times there's a focus on um, catastrophic injuries or like injuries that occur due to um, contact. And when we talk about those non-contact overuse injuries, we try to quantify it in terms of um, understanding load, which is which is fine. Um, but I, I think this part about movement variability gets missed. So I was actually hoping if you could expand upon that in terms of how movement variability may actually play uh, what type of role it plays in overuse injuries? Okay, well, I mean, it definitely plays a role, and I think it actually plays a really important role that we know we don't normally think about. I mean, you're right in the sense that overuse injury is a loading error. It doesn't really give us much insight. Really, I think what it is is let's and running is a good example, or any of the cyclical sports. It could be rowing, it could be swimming. But let's just use those as an example. Let me just use running as an example. So I'm fresh. I'm well rested. I go for a run. Uh, I'm an experienced runner. So what I have is a well-developed bandwidth of variability. And within that bandwidth, I have enough predictability on one hand. And on the other pole, I have enough variability to respond to perturbation. Now, let me just unpick that. what I mean by that a little bit. Perturbation can be anything. It can be a tiny unexpected loss of balance, let's say, that you're not even consciously aware of. If you respond sensitively to that perturbation, you can have this tiny little uh, remediating action, again, subconsciously, that will correct it. So you're very sensitive to sudden change and you remediate that sudden change straight away and seamlessly. So you're running away, your running stride is fine, there's no interference. There's no energy cost, there's no stumble. Now contrast that to uh, I'm running along, but I'm not really an experienced runner. I'm not very sensitive in terms of how I pick up and interpret sensory information. And, and there's a small perturbation that I don't pick up. So what happens to that perturbation? Then it, it's amplified in the next step and it's amplified again and it's amplified again. And suddenly I have to take evasive action. I have to make a big change to maintain balance. And that big change costs energy, might in a very small way put me out of my stride. I'll have a slight, uh, a slight little peak in my energy cost and it'll basically make me a slightly more vulnerable, slightly less efficient runner. So that's what I mean by that kind of trade-off between I'm, I know I'm going to be pretty predictable, but I'm not going to be rigidly predictable. And I know I'm going to be flexible enough to adapt to that situation, but I'm not going to be 
so ridiculously flexible that uh, I can't respond really quickly, that I have the right amount of options available to me. If I have too many options, it takes me too long to sort through them. If I don't have enough options, well, then those I'm going to run out of those options pretty quick because they're going to get overworked. Getting back to the overtraining issue, first day's running, all is fine. And then I run and maybe I'm not resting properly. All of a sudden, all those movement options, just they just start to contract very subtly. So, I mean, the most obvious thing is, well, let's say for whatever quirk I have in my anatomy that there's certain fibers in in my quadriceps or in my calf or in my hamstrings that start that that are overloaded a little bit uh, and they get a little more tired than you know other fibers of other motor units in my musculature so so they start to get a bit fatigued and then they start to ping a little bit and and they start to give sensory f- uh, feedback that's slightly negative again very very low level so what do i do well automatically what I do is I adapt how I run very, very subtly, invisible to the, to the naked eye. But all of a sudden, I, I, I don't stress those fibers anymore. I spare those fibers. Uh, and, I, and then I throw load onto a different set of fibers. Effectively, what I'm doing there is I'm reducing the overall working population that I have available to me. I can't do that without there being a slightly, you know, a slight knock-on effect. And the knock-on effect is I'm not really using these fibers the way I normally use them. And that's transferring a load onto somewhere else that I'm not used to. And that's starting to create a little bit of a hot spot. Or maybe I'm feeling a little bit of tightness. And now I'm, you know, the muscle is pulling on the tendon on the tendon that's our poop that's pulling on the articular surface. And all of a sudden now a little hot spot is starting to develop. And when that hot spot starts to develop, what do I do? Well, Okay, I build in a little automatic compensation pattern again, and I change how I move subtly again. And what does that do? Well, that perpetuates the cycle. It throws load onto somewhere else. And eventually what you see is that all these, this expansive population of movement options that I had access to on my first day of running when I was fit, fresh, but rested, now that's starting to diminish. Now that working population is, you know, the shifts are getting more frequent. The, I guess the easiest example is to talk of it in, in muscle terms. The amount of motor units or, or muscle fibers that I'm, I'm using is getting smaller and smaller. So the same load has been having to be re- or shifted around a, a reduced population. More work, more work, more work. And you add compromised rest into that and you have the recipe for an overuse injury. Which leads us in nicely when we start talking about rehabilitation. And there's this idea of plasticity of disuse, which you mentioned in your article. What impact does that have, plasticity of disuse, on an athlete that has a long-term injury and they haven't been performing the tasks that they have in the in the past? I think I should put in the disclaimer that this Nobody has really translated this work into into our world. This is work that, you know, has been per, has been accumulating, if you like, in in the in the neuroscientific fields, and uh, you know, stroke rehab things like that. No one's really translated it very effectively in, into our world, but but I do think it has big implica- implications that, that that I'm sure we'll get to talk to uh, talk about in a little bit in relation to misuse and disuse. And I guess the first point is that any time we get a peripheral injury tear a tissue, 
develop a hot spot on some surface or some tissue. That's not just a physical insult, that that is a, a central nervous system insult as well. So very simply, if if I tear a couple of fibers and I'm getting pain from that, that's going to change how they are used or not used. The central nervous system will try and protect them from pain. And that in itself is a, is a plastic change. That is a So what I will do is I will spare those. I'll start to use them differently or I'll start to recruit things around them in a different way to spare them. I guess this goes back to what what what's the key driver of plasticity. And the, clear, the, the key driver of plasticity is use. How do I use something? And there's a phrase that comes from the neuroscientific literature, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. People will have heard that before. And basically it means as if this neuron controls this motor unit, motor unit, and this neuron controls this other motor unit. And when I run, both of those motor units need to work in, in a cohesive fashion. Then these two neurons will learn plastically. So every time I, this neuron fire, or this neuron fires up first, and then with a tiny little delay, this neuron will fire off. And the more they do that, the more the connections between them become specifically tailored to executing that task in that specific way. And through that plastic modification, and it could be all kinds of tiny things like little sensitivity to little neurotransmitters or a slight thickening of the myelin sheath that surrounds the nerve. It could be any of those small little tiny things, but that micro, that, that change or that repetitive movement becomes embedded and that's the basis for why when we execute movements at first they cost us quite a lot in terms of mental energy and in terms of energy energy metabolic energy Uh, but as we get better those neuroplastic connections they make those linked particles the communications between those more efficient they make it cheaper they make the activation of those motor units much cleaner much more accurate metabolic energy consumption goes down as well. And I think that's, you know, the basis for a lot of why uh, in the endurance sports that they've tended to done large, large, you know, huge volumes. You won't find an elite endurance athlete that hasn't, hasn't done substantial volumes of repetitive activity. And in some sense, that is just what is happening there in the central nervous system is that those movements and the relationships bet- between those active interacting entities be they neural structures or biological structures those linkages are becoming ingrained to the nth degree and the more it's it's kind of those grooves are are being greased all the time i guess the best analogy i could give is you know you get your sled you go to the top of a, of a, a snowy hill you're the first one there in, in the morning Everything beneath you is clear snow. You can pick any route you want, but you pick a specific route because you have to pick one. The next time you slide down, it would be slightly more, slightly easier for you to repeat the same route or part of the same route because that's already become compacted and that's more efficient. And you keep doing that and then all of a sudden it becomes really super slick route and you are ultra efficient in that route. But then if you were to keep just doing that route again and again and again and again for a prolonged period of time what would happen is okay first you created the path then you broadened the path and now you're narrowing the path by doing the same exact route all the time once you do that 
then you're becoming brittle, then your variability is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing, and then you're becoming a, a you know, well, then you're a little more vulnerable to any unseen per- per- perturbation. So, yeah, so in relation to the overuse injury, I think it's a key fundamental mechanism, but sorry, the reduction in variability through fatigue, through the accumulation of prior injury. Uh, if you get a bang, a temporary bang that sensitizes the, a, a tissue, you know, all those things will cause you to adapt what you're doing to do it in a slightly more cumbersome, less efficient, more brittle, uh, more fragile way. And importantly, the more I do something, so for example, I get a kick uh, in my shin and it's sore and I adapt what I'm doing. Pretty soon what happens is that starts to become apparent in my central nervous system in the sense that, well, all of a sudden I'm not activating those neurons in the in that well-practiced coordinated pattern that I had been. Now I'm doing something slightly different. And now the wiring changes. I can't just rehab some tissue scan the, the tissue and say, oh, yeah, that tissue is healed. So that player must be good to go again. Well, that's ignoring half the story because the other half of the story is within the central nervous system. The little fine microstructures that links components, the neurons that control that particular patch of tissue in the motor cortex, the, nerve, the, the nerves that, that, that carry that signal to the, the motor units, they've all been degraded. And in this case, it would be through misuse. I guess one take-home point for me is that a peripheral injury is never just peripheral. There's always a central nervous system consequence. But we don't see that. We don't scan for that. We can't. And I'm sure, as you know, and many of your listeners will know, you can have people clear all the the RTP protocols and so on, but they just don't seem as comfortable anymore. They just don't seem as fluent anymore. They don't seem to have the same choice of movement as, as they had before. And it's something that for a long time fascinated me in terms of we could have somebody cleared back to performance training or back to competition. But once, you know, and they would pass all the required, the standard, you know, pain-free, scan is good, uh, strength is equalized, both sides, type protocols. But that there's obviously something missing. That's a great segue because we're there is a journal of sports rehabilitation. This was 2011. I'm not going to mention the author's name because I'm probably getting it wrong. But title of it was tracking ability, motor coordination, and functional determinants after ACL reconstruction. And within that, one of the conclusions was that despite that uh, muscular strength had increased. Uh, Patients continue to have significant motor coordination deficits, even 12 months post-surgery. So I talked about how can we go about improving motor coordination within these long-term rehabilitation programs, which I think fits in nicely with also positive plasticity doing rehabilitation. So what is needed in terms of plastic remodeling for the mature motor cortex to ensure that movement coordination has been restored within an injured athlete? outside of what you've seen from the RTP protocols, you know, the scan is clear, they're pain-free, strength has been restored. Can we talk a little bit more about that restoration of coordinated tasks? If you injure a tissue and you stop using it, it seems like 
nothing is going to change in, in the tissue and maybe the, the tissue heals and the tissue is repaired, but that there is a consequence in the central nervous system. Now, you're just slightly less likely to be, you know, to activate that tissue in the same way as you did before. So there's all, that's the plasticity of disuse. There's a plasticity of misuse then, which would be, okay, well, there's a couple of neighboring tissues that now I have to use in a slightly dysfunctional way because, because we injured that other patch of, of tissue just beside us. Uh, and, and that change gets, gets quickly plastically embedded as well. Uh, so that would be a plasticity of disuse. And in a sense, we can, you know, the plasticity never holds still. It, it's, you can never get it back to where it was uh, if something significant happened. It's a, it's, and it's not about getting it back to where it's what, where it was. It's getting it back to a level that's robust. And there's, there's, there, there's slightly different things. Now, I guess another couple of just examples to give you, to, just to show you that plasticity isn't. It's not a very slow. It's not like a glacial, you know, you have to be injured for six weeks type of thing. This is a really quick process, uh, and at some levels, it's it's happening nearly. You know, it's happening all all the time. The famous experiment, maybe probably the 90s, you get a monkey, you brain scan them, you sew two of their fingers together. So you sew two of the fingers together and, and then obviously you start to use two fingers as one. And what you see is a change in the motor area that represents those fingers and that that motor area starts to light up as one. And those plastic changes are really quickly embedded as in few days, week type thing that when you now remove the stitches, that monkey is still moving his fingers as if they're one and is cumbersome, just as he was as a, or she was as a, as a young primate. So these things happen quick. In terms of, you know, as someone who's worked in kind of RTP for a long time, I would think that like, like a lot of sports science domains, we focus on on, on measurable outcomes. What can we measure? Uh, and a lot of the time, I think that leaves us astray. So we look at what can we measure? Well, we can measure strength in this way or that way, and we can measure X, Y, and Z. But coordination, I tell you, is that coordination is a, extremely hard to measure, at least on a fine level, as you would have with any type of practiced, experienced athlete. So to, in, a, in, a, in a really meaningful sense, I think we've been blind to coordination deficits. You mentioned that bit of uh, research around ACL, but that's mirrored in a lot of domains or in, in a lot of uh, injury areas that there's coordinative deficits left in there for prolonged periods post-injury. Uh, and I I think it's it's something that brings down the ceiling levels of potential to any for any athlete. If you have had a long history of injury, your ceiling levels, the amount of options you have, you know, the options we talked about earlier, those options have been diminished unless you've taken really, really focused, specific care to rebuild up options. If not the exact set of options you had before, a slightly different set of options that renders you equally robust, uh, I, I guess. And, and just to start pulling it towards more practical outcomes, for quite a few years, I've moved away from our conventional kind of practice of, of time framing rehab slash RTP processes. And now I'm inclined to look at them as uh, they are really long-term processes. So I certainly, you know, it, it doesn't matter necessarily what the injury was or what part of the body, but I would be, I would be introducing work-ons that extend 
into the future well after the, the athlete feels that I'm back to normal. Well, you're not really back to normal. You feel like you're back to normal. We don't know if you're back to normal because we just can't see that stuff. But we do know from prior experiences and from lots and lots the weight of the research that there's an embedded legacy in there that's insidious and that is exposing you to risk. And, you know, you might be fine, but you pick up another little bang or you get towards the back end of a game or a match or a race. And all of a sudden, because of fatigue and so on, your options have reduced and now you're being exposed because of that prior legacy. And then you're going to be vulnerable. And, and that's when you go again. And again, that's kind of what we see with so many injuries is that you want to predict future injury. Look backwards and see what past injuries have gone on. And if there's been a lot of past injuries, well, there's quite there's an elevated risk of future injury. And I think that that all kind of speaks to just the fact that for me, we don't chase down injuries enough for long enough. Uh, and I guess just to preempt the next question and, and you know, just, just to kind of keep keep spinning here while, while I'm moving. I think that the tissue part of the equation, we're all pretty good at. You know, we know how to load tissue and tissue responds well to load. Getting the strength of a muscle back to where it was that's not really that hard but it's kind of a gross measure getting the strength of a muscle i mean we say a muscle but any muscle is really and i mean this in a really real way it's it's a it's a collection of mini muscles that are then further subdivided into motor units that are then sub further subdivided into uh the, the fibers attached to those motor units. So we can have a muscle that's working to the same strength output post-injury as pre-injury. But what you have now is, well, actually, you've knocked out that mini muscle, but these other ones are now having to work harder to get the same output. You can do it, but it's a little dysfunctional. And I think we see that, you know, quite a lot. That goes on all the time. And and then so, so then we're caught in the bind. Well, these are all things that I kind of can't see but I, I would suggest that rationale, logic would support, okay, so what do we do? And I think it's just we have to chase injuries for longer. Player may be back playing, but I would still be inclined to chase them. And I chased them from two ways, uh, to two kind of broad ways uh, and very basic in a sense, but uh, to me sensible. I would chase the tissue in terms of, you know, depending on the tissue, but when, when, when tissue injures, it never heals the same as it was. It's never the same as it was. I guess the best example is, you know, you, you, you tear some fibers and they go from a nice aligned coherent structure, coherent collagen structures to all of a sudden a kind of a erratic zigzagged little whirlpool of directions and contour directions. And it's just, it breaks up the flow, the flow of force through that fiber and it sets up a kind of a stress node that's inherently it's it, it's a, a vulnerability but also disrupts the you know the yeah the coherent flow of force from one end of the muscle to the other or one end of the fiber to the other so that's on the structural level and then in the, at the central nervous system level again that plasticity is always happening and if we get a trauma and we lay off then we have misuse kicking in once we've once we're not using something, 
then the resources that are normally allocated to executing that movement, they're a finite pot of resources, so they get allocated elsewhere. So what does elsewhere mean? Well, if I have to adapt my movement pattern, all of a sudden I'm pinging off these neurons rather than these neurons or in this sequence rather than that sequence, then that's the sequence that now becomes embedded. So there's kind of a competitive plasticity between, okay, this is what I've been doing for years, but now there's been a subtle change for a couple of weeks. But in that couple of weeks, I had a new pattern. I'd only had a limited amount of resources. So I took resources from the way I used to use it and I molded those into this new way, this new compensatory pattern. That probably isn't ideal because I've just kind of, I've had to patch it together really quickly, but now it's embedded and now it's the new reality and now it's the new normal for me. Uh, and again, what you have there is perhaps the muscle isn't being activated in a very appropriate way or it's relying on a limited population of motor units to put to to put out most of its uh, of the power of that muscle and those things are vul vulnerabilities they're making you a little more brittle if if the task asks a little bit more of you then they're a weak link or if it's the back end of games and you're really fatigued and your ceiling levels are, are coming down then then they're a weak link yeah so so basically two sides tissue sides and the other side is the plasticity side so there's gonna be two ends to this question the first one is the question that you mentioned how do you drive positive plasticity in a rehabilitation setting but more importantly based on your experiences um, how have you driven from an rtp perspective increasing levels of coordinative task difficulty with athletes that you've worked with and it, and you can just give examples based on specific athletes that you have worked with and gone about this process and how you have gone about it well you know what what is interesting is that when you talk about the legacy of prior injury because we use such blunt measures so 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 often we we assume injuries are gone long before they ever are but one of the things i do in from a research perspective is there's little units now, integrated measurement units that would have very high sensitivity accelerometers, goniometers, uh, EMG, all that type of stuff within the unit. You know, they're wireless. You can strap them onto whatever parts of the body you want. And you use that type of insight to look at prior injuries and and you see that the legacy of prior injuries lasts for years. And, you know, I, I don't actually think prior injuries ever go away. I think what happens is we learn other ways to accomplish the same movement tasks, but they're always different ways than they were before the injury. And I think that's kind of important for us to think about because I don't think we can really, within the conventional confined space of an allotted rehab or re RTP timeframe, I don't think we can really do that and make those new options really secure. And that's one of the reasons I think that my approach would be, okay, we do your rehab, go through the various stages, we do your RTP, you're back in performance training, you may be back playing or competing, but we're going to keep an eye on this and we're going to keep doing little work-ons, might be five minutes before, five minutes after. It's an adjusted warm-up, certainly. It might be a specifically focused element of a session, but we're always working on the understanding that, you know what, there's some damage put in there and that damage has created a vulnerability. 
And that vulnerability does, doesn't just go when the tissue is healed because of all those plastic malformations and embedded dysfunctional uh, compensatory patterns. So now we just got to make this new movement really secure. How do we make it secure? Well, we make the tissue secure. So we load the tissue and we make uh, the central nervous system control. We optimize that. How do we do that? Well, okay, that's a tougher question. The basic answer is you activate it, you move, but that isn't really good enough. So I think what we need to do is if you want to generate plastic change, it has to be something that's sufficiently challenging that the athlete has to pay close attention to, to successfully accomplish. So we design challenges that are at the limits of the athlete's ability. Now, the limits of the athlete's ability, it could be as simple as a, one of the elements could be, for example, a balancing test uh, or some test of balance where all the stability reflexes are having to fire off, for example. Again, just because you, I don't think you can try, ever trust one tool to do the whole trick. I would look at a number of differently formed challenges. So, for example, if it was, let's take ACL, uh, I would have some single leg stability where all those stability reflexes are having to, to be recalibrated that are being fired off in response to sensory uh, emerging sensory information. I would, so that's a kind of a, a non-movement, if you like, a, a pretty straightforward, simple, safe exercise. I would move that on to ones that are more, a little more complex. Now, explaining these verbally would be hard, but I think Franz Bosch does a really good job with a lot of his exercises. Uh, I think he designs some very nice exercises. Uh, the key point is if we want to drive coordinative change, we have to drive microarchitectural plastic change. If we want to drive microarchitectural plastic change, it's not good enough having the athlete do an exercise they're or movement they're used to or a movement that they're very good at or a movement that they're bad at the first time they try it. But then they really become really good really quick and then they just keep doing the same movement. So you need to keep pushing the challenge of the movement out by altering design. Now, what might be an example? Uh, typically, I would use a lot of things like uh, rubber bands. So let's see, it could be as simple as I am doing some form of step up. I have a brush pole overhead and there is a thin elastic band attached to one or both ends of that uh, of that brush pole, for example. And I'm doing that dynamic step up and I have, I'm having to stabilize and stick in a, uh, a high knee position at the top of that movement. So, okay, obviously very hard to visualize, but I don't think there's a rule to this other than it should be something that the athlete has. It ingrains a lot of good athletic habits good postural control, good co-contraction. The athlete is having to focus on where is this part of my body in relation to this part of my body, and they're having to pay close attention to sensory information or, they, or, they, or the movement can't be executed successfully. So I don't know if, they, if, if that made sense, but again, just to continue. So I'm saying the spectrum. So that's slow, then the, an isolated gym-type movement maybe. I think it would have to stretch into... If it's a if it's a runner, if it's a jumper, if it's a field sports player, there would have to be more dynamic activities. But we tend to do a lot of that in training anyway. I think the one thing people need to be aware of is that if I have the embedded legacy of an injury, 
I can still do rapid changes of direction, for example. I can still do pretty much any test you want, but that doesn't mean that I'm doing them fully functionally and fully safely. I may, what I, the likelihood is, I can do the movement, but now I'm, uh, I'm not doing it with the, with the same safety buffer that I was doing it. I'm now relying on a more limited set of uh, techniques to execute that specific movement. <clears throat> Excuse me, because part of my working population has been made that little bit harder to recruit or that little bit more sensitized or I have this little kind of psychological, you know, really, really faint anxiety about moving in this specific way. And again, that might only come out if I'm moving at high speed and all of a sudden I put my foot down and I don't have that, that buffer isn't there that used to be there and again, something bad happens. Or most commonly it's there at the back end of halves, the back end of matches uh, when there's a lot of fatigue in the system as well, and your ceiling comes down that little bit lower with fatigue, and now, and now you're walking the line because that previous injury, that legacy is still there, and we haven't totally eradicated it. The cure for that is, and and this is where it actually gets quite difficult, is designing tasks that force the athlete to nearly make instantaneous adjustments. So just to put a bit of meat on what I mean by that, if you can picture a scenario where, let's say it's pitch field sports player and they've rehabbed a hamstring injury, they've done their normal bits and bobs, but you're you're concerned about the legacy. So they obviously, they're going to do a gradual progression to high-speed running and then they're going to control their meters and so on. But one of the other things you do is, again, to try and, enforce that previously injured tissue to reintegrate into the working population is something like maybe get some uh, small markers that aren't visible from far away they are only visible when you're close to them so maybe little buttons or it could be anything but something that you can't see from far off so you can't anticipate from far off and then you put those markers down at intervals around the athlete's normal stride length and then you change that length and the objective for the athlete is to run through that course at as high a speed as they can, but hitting all of those markers. So basically what you've done there is you've introduced a context where the athlete has to run at a decent speed and they have to make adjustments nearly instantaneously as they're coming up upon the obstacle. So they're constantly having to shorten, lengthen stride, increase drive, decrease drive. Uh, increase ankle stiffness, decrease ankle stiffness, and so on. So I think that's a very kind of a safe and subtle way to to add robustness and add uh, restore options. I think those are fantastic examples. And in terms of the isolated gym exercises, if you have uh, any videos, um, I'll be more than happy to put them on the show notes. Or if you want to release them, release them on, on Twitter, one or two of them um, after the podcast is published then uh, I'll make sure to get that out as well, because I think the, that would be a fantastic resource. Well, look, I, I think the <clears throat> with the gym resource, or sorry, with the gym exercises, it's just if you bear a few principles in mind, then you can make up your own to suit the individual and suit the injury. It doesn't matter if it's leg, if it's arm, if it's shoulder, if it's back. It's having, well, for me, it's having something that challenges 
that, that puts the right amount of tension across the tissue, that challenges the tissue to remodel. So that plasticity exists in the peripheral level and that the tissue has to plastically remodel. So that's just loading strategy. Put tension across muscle and, it, and the muscle will adapt. Put tension across a tendon and the tendon will adapt. If you have an injured muscle and you don't put some tension across it, then you know it's going to remodel in a very dysfunctional way. So we really need that that tension to to optimize the remodeling process post post trauma. Central nervous system is the same. We need to reintegrate working components that have been deselected because they haven't been used. And as soon as we're not using them, uh, other neural entities start to cannibalize their components, their the resources that they have plastically stored for their own uses. So we need to kind of re recalibrate what's happening there as well. And I think the only way to do that is setting those coordinative challenges and a range of coordinative challenges that are sufficiently difficult, but sufficiently safe, that range from slow movement to fast movement, that range from high reflexive control, like kind of single leg stability work, to a high conscious control like you know end stage rehab where i'm doing a change of direction based on your movement for example so i i think it's all about a range and the only thing i'm suggesting that we add is just maybe a little bit more subtlety to to how we think about it and based on on that subtle, based on that insight maybe a little bit more creativity around some of the challenges that we devise because we're inclined to take off the shelf exercises for all the standard injuries off the shelf uh, solutions off the shelf time frames but every injury is completely different the main point i'd make is just not assuming an injury is gone because the period of rehab or rtp is over because it's certainly not and you measure in a fine enough scale years later and you'll find that legacy our job is trying to erode the negative consequences of that legacy by building in as many options as we can. And though that option, those options are their coordinative elements and they're making uh, tissues as robust as possible. John, I think that was a fantastic way of uh, finishing off and putting everything into context, um, everything that we've discussed within this uh, podcast previously. If uh, anybody has any follow-up questions for you or they want to reach out what is the best way they can do so yeah well look i'm sure people have follow-up questions because I, I i i'm not sure i nailed that it's quite a hard thing to talk about without um uh, visuals but yeah people can reach me at jkiley at uclan.ac.uk that's my university email address and i'm on twitter at simply sports great and i'll make sure to put that in the show notes when i publish the podcast and John, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on the Historic Performance Podcast to discuss some of the ideas behind neuroplasticity, some of the ideas that are in neuroscience and how you're trying to translate into our world and uh, give a little bit more insight in terms of how some of the maybe missing pieces that we're missing within rehabilitation. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, I hope it was interesting and I hope it helps in some way. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. If you listen to the show on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate it if you leave 
either an honest review or rating. Helps other strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists learn about the show. For all previous episodes, make sure to check out historicperformance.net. And to learn about any new episodes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Historic Perform. Thank you, and I'll see all of you next week.